0: Psalm 28 a psalm of David to you I will cry O Lord my rock do not be silent to me lest if you are silent to me I become like those who go down to the pit hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you when I lift my hands toward your holy sanctuary do not take me away with the wicked and with the workers of iniquity who speak peace to their neighbors but evil is in their hearts Give them according to their deeds and according to the wickedness of their endeavors give them according to the work of their hands Render to them what they deserve because they do not regard the works of the Lord nor the operation of his hands he shall destroy them and not build them up blessed be the Lord because he has heard the voice of my supplications the Lord is my strength and my shield my heart trusted in him and I am helped therefore my heart greatly rejoices, and with my song, I will praise him. The Lord is their strength, and he is the saving refuge of his anointed. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Shepherd them also and bear them up forever. All right, we're in Numbers 32 now. We're getting close to the end of the book of Numbers. Can anybody, without looking, tell me how many chapters there are in the book of Numbers? Hmm. 36. Very good. Everybody here got that. I'm proud of you. <laughs> Numbers 32, 1 through 19 is our sermon. It's Do not take us over the Jordan. Now, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of livestock. And when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that indeed the region was a place for livestock, The children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spoke to Moses, to Eliezer the priest, and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, Rot, Debon, Jezer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Eliale, Shevam, Nebo, and Beon, the country which the Lord defeated before the congregation of Israel, is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. Therefore they said, If we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us over the Jordan. And Moses said to the children of Gad and to the children of Reuben, Shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? Now, why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given them? Thus your fathers did when I sent them away from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eshcol and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the children of Israel, so that they did not go into the land which the Lord had given them. So the Lord's Anger was aroused on that day, and he swore an oath, saying, Surely none of the men who came up from Egypt, from twenty years old and above, shall see the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, and Joshua the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. So the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness forty years, until all... The generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone and look you have risen in your father's place a brood of sinful men to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel for if you turn away from following him he will once again leave them in the wilderness and you will destroy all these people then they came near to him and said we will build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones But we ourselves will be armed ready to go before the children of Israel until we have brought them to their place, and our little ones will dwell in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until every one of the children of Israel has received his inheritance. For we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond because our inheritance has fallen to us on this eastern side of the Jordan. Now, I want you to remember what this is picturing. They were at Sinai. They went towards Canaan. That was an obvious picture of Christ's coming, his advent, and they rejected him. And now 38 some years later, it's 40 total from the time in the wilderness, but 38 some years later, they are ready to go over the Jordan. And all of that pictures, if you remember in these sermons, all of that pictures the last 2,000 years of them having rejected Christ and them being under punishment. It's been very clear what's been going on. They are now standing at the point where Christ is being presented to them again. Now think of that, because we are at that moment in human history right now. That's what makes this so astonishing. And one of the things, we're, you know, we get a lot of information in these sermons, and it gets technical, and maybe you start to fall asleep in your head. And I don't mean that in a mean way. I'm just saying there's a lot coming at you. Why would Moses f- focus on the Valley of Eshkol? Remember they went up into the land and talked about all kinds of places they went, and on the way back they stopped in the Valley of Eshkol. And they carry back some grapes and stuff, remember that? Mm -hmm. But it was just on the way back, they didn't really go up into the valley of they came back that way, but he focuses on that. So when we get to that, perk up again. I just want you to, there are some good pictures being made, and I don't want you to miss them, but you have a copy in your hand, or you can get one online. If you don't get it now, go back and read it, and you will. In the verses today, it is readily apparent that Moses becomes almost enraged at the words brought to his ears. He was 80 years old when he last stood this close to entering Canaan. Now he is 120, and except for Joshua and Caleb, he has seen the death of every adult around him since that time. And even though he will not enter into Canaan, he wants the assurance in his heart that his beloved people will. His appeals to God over these many years have constantly been on their behalf. He has led them like a shepherd and petitioned the Lord for them on his face many times. But now, a possible obstacle has arisen once again that puts their entrance into the promise in jeopardy. It is apparent that he is ready to go to battle to ensure that this will not be the case. What will be the outcome? And what is it that has him so upset that he would immediately scold those who have come before him? Our text verse comes from Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 31. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from deeds of the law. I'll stop right there and say, what does Moses picture? The law. He's the law giver. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith, that means the Jewish people, and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Moses is Israel's lawgiver, and yet he saw the very thing which kept Israel from entrance into the land of promise 40 years earlier. Actually, it's about 38 years earlier, but the whole time is 40 years. It wasn't an infraction of the law at all. It was a lack of faith. In the promises of the Lord remember that the people didn't have faith that the Lord would bring them up and so they wept and moaned after the spies gave their bad report Moses came to understand that the law had a particular purpose but it was not that which got the people into Canaan rather their faith in the Lord is what got them in or kept them out Moses discovered this and he added it onto what has already been said about his predecessors This is a certain truth which is revealed in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again and may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Before I get to our first thought today, my mother just walked in. She did not participate in her birthday cake, which we had for her. Happy birthday to my mother and to Nance out in California who also has her birthday on the same day. Our first thought today is a brood of sinful men. It's verses 1 through 15. Verse 1, Now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of livestock. And when they saw that the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that indeed the region was a place for livestock, the Hebrew of this first verse of the chapter sets the tone for what is coming. The way it is laid out, there is an emphasis on the word livestock, which begins and ends the verse. It says in the structure of the Hebrew, And livestock many had sons Reuben and sons Gad, mighty very. And when they saw land Jazer and land Gilead, and behold, the place, a place for livestock. So it begins the verse, it ends the verse, and it talks about the surpassing multitude of livestock twice during the verse. Because of the great amount of livestock, which is especially highlighted by the use of the two descriptions, many and mighty very. And because of the nature of the land being especially suited for livestock, the stage is set for what lies ahead. It is to be noted that according to Numbers 2, both Reuben and Gad were situated on the south of the camp along with Simeon. Thus, for almost 40 years, these people had grown up together, they had lived together, and probably they shared a very close bond through marriage and the like. Simeon is probably not included in this joining because they had the largest reduction of men in the second census. They were at this time a small clan, and thus their destiny is tied in with the majority of Israel, not a group who desires to branch out from the whole. Jazer means helpful, or he shall help. In Numbers 21-32, it was seen to be a city of the Amorites which was taken by Israel. Diliad means perpetual fountain. When Gilead is referred to, it is more of a great area which extends to both the north and the south of the Jabbok River. Here it is identified with the area south of the river. The area was said to have been taken from Sihon, king of the Amorites, back in Numbers 21. From there it's said that Israel took possession of the land and dwelt in its cities. It is possibly during those wars that the greatness of the livestock was obtained by Reuben and Gad. As far as the terrain, scholars noted that even during the time of the desolation of the land for the past 2,000 years, it was always known as an area that remained rich and fertile. During that time, it was known as the Belka, and Arabs had a saying, you cannot find a country like the Belka. It was such an enticing place to Reuben and Gad that, verse 2, the children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spoke to Moses, to Eliezer the priest, and to the leaders of the congregation, saying... Reuben is both the firstborn and the larger of the two tribes. He is also the main tribe of the southern divisions, and yet Gad is placed first in this verse. It indicates that it was probably they who were the chief instigators of what follows. This appears to be borne out in the verses we'll see next week. Gad means both troop, meaning a large group, and fortune. It could be that using Gad as the main tribe being referred to is to show that these people are seeking their fortune, represented by Gad, instead of seeking the Lord's will. Reuben means, see a son. Together, they come forward to the leadership of all of the congregation with words to consider. Verse 3, Atrot debon jezer nimrah heshbon eliale shevam nebo and Beon. They are the names of nine cities. In the Bible, nine is the number of finality or judgment. The names don't appear to form any special pattern, and this is especially so because the meaning of several of them are almost impossible to determine. They're listed again later in this chapter, with some being named slightly differently. For a best guess of the meaning of the names, in case you want to know, Atrot means crowns, debon means pining, jazer means helpful, nimrah means place of leopard or clear water, heshbon means intelligence, eliale, god ascends, shevam should read sebam, it's actually wrong here, the new king james version, it should say sebam, which means spice, nebo means interpreter or fortune teller, beon, Maybe a contraction of Baal may own which would be master of the house, but we can only guess on those Four, The country which the Lord defeated before the congregation of Israel Haaretz Asher Hika Yehovah the land which struck Yehovah after naming the towns They note that it is the Lord who struck the country This is true and it is probably intended to show that they expect all such conquests to end in the same manner But what is also true is that it is Israel who is the Lord's arm for striking nations in warfare. The Lord didn't just strike these people with a plague or send hailstones down on the Amorites. Rather, the battles which defeated Sihon and Og were waged by Israel. This is again attested to later in Deuteronomy 2 verse 33, where it says, And the Lord our God delivered him over to us, so we defeated him, his sons, and all his people. Verse 4 going on, is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. It is apparent already that their proposal is based on the fact that they desire this land as their own. The Lord defeated it, and now it is at the disposal of the leaders of Israel to do with it as they best determined. How far their desire goes is what is next stated. Verse 5, therefore they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. The words are in the singular. And thus the address is to Moses alone. They have noted that the Lord gave the land to Israel, and Moses is the one to speak on behalf of the Lord. And so they say, if we have found grace in your eyes. It's a common expression first introduced when Abraham spoke to the Lord in Genesis chapter 18. Its meaning is obvious. We have a request, and we look to you for approval of it, if it is your will to favor us in the matter. In this case, it is for their own possession east of the Jordan instead of the land in Canaan. Verse 5 continues, Do not take us over the Jordan. Hayarden, or the Jordan, meaning the descender, is the dividing line between the hope of the promise and the realization of it. Our brother, Doug, over in Ireland, did a painting for us again, as he always does. And it's beautiful. It's got Moses standing there, and there's some symbolism that he'd have to explain to you. But there is the Jordan right there. And you can see Jericho on the other side, the walls of Jericho, and it's marvelous. So if you get a chance, go on to his page on Facebook and look at it. Marvelous picture. Anyway, that's the dividing line is the Jordan. It gets its name the descender from the great descent that it makes it goes from the top of Mount Hermon all the way down to the very lowest elevation on earth which is the Dead Sea in typology the Jordan pictures Christ who descended from the heights of heaven to come down to the earth and who even descended to death itself passing over the Jordan means to pass over to what God has promised remember this is picturing Israel not having yet received Christ and we're at that point in human history, right now. To Israel, it is an earthly inheritance. To those whom Israel looked to in type, it is restoration and fellowship with God. Moses probably had no idea about this typology, but he certainly had an idea about rejecting the promise and doing so at the expense of others. Verse 6 And Moses said to the children of Gad and to the children of Reuben, as occurred in verse 2, and as will continue throughout the chapter, Gad is again placed first. The text appears to be showing that it is Gad who is the main tribe behind the plan, and thus the main tribe to be addressed first in the incident. For them, there is the seeking of a fortune east of the Jordan to which Moses now responds. Verse 6 continues, Shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? There is a rather sharp dividing line between what scholars see as the intent behind this request by Gad and Reuben. Some see it in the negative. They are cowardly and self-seeking, or at best, uncaring about the plight of the other tribes who must go in and subdue Canaan. Others see it as a trust, in fact, that the Lord had won all of the battle so far for them, and thus the conquest of Canaan is a foregone conclusion, of which they need not even be present in order for it to come about. We can only speculate on which is correct. And we can't even know if what transpires later in this passage was already considered by them and is something that they would have voluntarily acted upon. We just don't know. It is certain, however, that they are content with what they possess. We have seen how profitable it is to have men of war in battle. The amount of plunder that came to the soldiers as it was divided would have been an enormous enticement to join all of Israel in each battle if they did not intend to assist in the battles it means that they felt what they had was sufficient for them already but two things are for sure to Moses the first is that Israel is a collective whole we need to remember that in the Bible Israel is a collective whole and secondly Moses takes their words in the most negative light possible rightly or wrongly he sees this as an act of cowardice and or uncaring greed Because what they have said so far is at best vague as to any other intentions, he takes their request as basically asking for land that has been subdued by the entire congregation of fighting men while they can sit and enjoy the spoils of others' efforts. At the same time, the rest of Israel still has to fight its way through to its inheritance. And there's a good reason for his attitude and so he begins with verse 7 now why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given them here Moses uses a word nu, seen only four times so far in numbers chapter 30 this was concerning a father or a husband forbidding a vow which was made by a woman under his authority it would appear that this should be taken in exactly the same way It is as if these two tribes have the authority to forbid the hearts of the children of Israel from going over the Jordan. It isn't just that they would merely discourage the hearts of the people, but that they would be the force behind them being incapable of going over. Moses even says that it is the land which the Lord has given them. It is their possession. But he acts as if these two tribes are actively forbidding Israel to enter. And to support this, he says, verse 8, Thus your fathers did when I sent them away from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. This goes back to the last time that Israel was right at the door of Canaan. They had arrived at the wilderness of Paran, and Moses had sent men to spy out the land. Here he calls them, your fathers. He is directly tying Gad and Reuben into the family that transgressed against the Lord, showing that they are of the same seed that brought about the great woe that came upon the people. Upon their return, they brought back a bad report, thus causing the people to turn their hearts away from advancing into Canaan. Here, the spot is called Kadesh Barnea for the first time. Before, it was simply called Kadesh, or holy. And the reason for that was that while in that spot, Moses had failed to hallow the Lord before the people's eyes. Now it is called Kadesh Barnea, which means either sacred desert of wandering, or maybe in the active sense, which I think is more likely, holy purifying wanderings, because they have been purified through their wanderings of 38 years. And that's what's happened to Israel for the past 2,000 years. They've been purified. The reason for using the term Kadesh Barnea now for the first time seems to be an indictment on the attitude of the people which caused them to become fugitives wandering in the desert for 38 years moses is reminding them that this was the result of israel's previous disobedience while standing right at the door of entrance into canaan his words are intended to wake them up to the severity of the situation and to remind them of the consequences of the actions of the people with this in mind he continues with verse 9 for when they went up to the Valley of Eshkol and saw the land Moses could have chosen any point among the journeys of the twelve spies but his words single out the Valley of Eshkol and so it needs to be re-explained what Nahal Eshkol or the Valley of Eshkol means the word Nahal signifies a wadi where water would flow through during the seasons of rain that word comes from Nahal meaning to take possession or inherit Eshkol means cluster But that comes from the word eshek, meaning a testicle. As we learned, this pictured Christ's work. Once having been accepted, he took possession of that which proceeds from the spot where man is generated from. In other words, it is a picture of the overriding of original sin in man. Sin transfers from father to child. The semen which is generated in man is what transfers that sin. Christ has through his work taken possession of that in all who move from Adam to him it is the realization of the kingdom for his people through this act this however was rejected by Israel just as the spies who went into the Valley of Eshcol had rejected the promises of the Lord the Lord through Moses words to these men is giving us a recounting of what brought them to the disaster that followed both for that generation And for the generation who would come and reject the work of Christ before we go on some of you may not understand exactly what I just said and I want to be clear the picture of circumcision is what is being pictured here circumcision was given to Abraham as a picture of the coming Christ because sin transfers from father to child it does not transfer through the mother when Christ came he was not born of a human father circumcision the picture is now complete in Christ because he has God is his father and a human mother original sin did not transfer to him because he had a human mother he's fully human but because God is his father he is born without sin does everybody see that and that's what's being pictured Christ has come and they rejected him and that's why he focused on the valley of Eshkol. for the wilderness generation verse 9 continues they discouraged the heart of the children of Israel Moses uses the word "nu" again to forbid which he used in verse seven this is its last use in the books of Moses and he is essentially saying they forbid the heart of the children of Israel the word heart is in the singular the people are a collective whole with one undivided heart do you see that Israel is one any part of it can affect the entire whole And that is what's being pictured. They are one people again in the world. They're gathered from among the nations. And this, what we're seeing right now, is going to be lived out again in the history of Israel. Mark my words. We've seen the symbolism already. The typology has been perfect up until this point. We are at this point in history. The spies had discouraged that heart, forbidding it to have faith in the promises of the Lord and causing them to instead disbelieve. One can clearly see the parallel which caused Israel to disbelieve in the work of Christ, which was found in Matthew 28. That's at their first coming, his first coming in front of Israel. It says there, now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. Remember that leaders of Israel were the ones that were selected to go up and check out the land. It is the leaders of Israel who discouraged the hearts of the people here in Matthew when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers saying tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept and if this comes to the governor's ears we will appease him and make you secure so they took the money and did as they were instructed and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day you seeing the parallels The spies in the wilderness, leaders among the people, forbid the people to trust in the Lord through their negative report. And the leaders of Israel at the time of Jesus did the same. They spread a bad report, which caused their own extended punishment. Moses' final two uses of the word new here, after its introduction just two short chapters ago, is intended to show us this. It isn't just that the collective heart of the people was discouraged but that it was forbidden from faith by the actions of the leaders. This is also exactly repeated by the author of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 4, which is a book directed to the end times Jews, those who are exactly being pictured in these number sermon, we read this in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. I should have marked my Bible. It'll take a second to get there. Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, now think of Israel. They were going to go into the land of Canaan. They didn't. They did not enter God's rest. And so the promise is for later for Israel. Okay? Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Sounds just like what happened back when they were at Canaan before. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those who To whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience again he designates a certain day saying in David today after such a long time as it has been said today if you will hear his voice do not harden your hearts for if Joshua had given them rest then he would not afterward have spoken of another day there remains therefore a rest for the people of God for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest sounds like Moses talking to Israel right now lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Because of this, Moses continues with verse 9 going on, so that they did not go into the land which the Lord had given them. The word that Moses uses here, though not an uncommon one, is one which is stronger than simply not doing something. It is a failure to do something. One might paraphrase this as so that they failed to go into the land. Moses is recounting what occurred before directly speaking what is on his mind concerning the request of Gad and Reuben in order to set the stage for why it is on his mind at all. The spies forbid the hearts of Israel, and therefore Israel failed to obtain the promise, just as it sounded in Hebrews chapter 4. This is what Paul speaks of concerning Israel also in Romans chapter 11, where he calls Israel's rejection of Christ, meaning the promise, of failure, which in turn meant riches for the Gentiles, which is exactly what has happened for the past 2,000 years. The pattern is obvious. Israel's earthly rejection of Canaan here in Numbers is a direct picture of Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ, and thus a spiritual rejection of restoration with God. Canaan, the land, is representative of restored paradise and fellowship with God. This is seen in the next words, verse 10. So the Lord's anger was aroused on that day. Ve'yichar af Yehovah bayom, and burned nostril Yehovah that day. The imagery is that of Yehovah's nostrils flaring with anger and shooting forth flames. Imagine the anger of the Lord at the faithless people who had seen all of his great wonders cowering at the report rejecting the Lord and his promises there in Kadesh Barnea it was a faithless act which brought them punishment exile and rejection now imagine the anger of the Lord at the faithless people who had seen all of the miracles and wonders of Jesus Christ the Lord and then rejected him and his promises and so verse 10 continues and he swore an oath saying the word of the Lord is an oath in and of itself he does not need to say I swear for his word to be confirmed but when he does it is assigned to the people that what he says is sure to come about In numbers 14 he added an extra confirmation to what he will say in verse 11 with the words as I live says the Lord it is his way of saying that what he was to utter would be performed the substance of what he then said in numbers chapter 14 is repeated by Moses now verse 11 surely none of the men who came up from Egypt Here, Moses speaks to them concerning those who came up from Egypt. They were redeemed from Egypt. Egypt pictures bondage to sin. The Lord, in fact, redeemed Israel from their sin through his work. But there is a difference between being redeemed potentially and being redeemed actually. Jesus redeemed Israel potentially, didn't he? He redeemed every person on this planet. But they had to accept his redemption to be redeemed actually. In this, Moses calls them ha-anashim The word olim is a verb. Thus it reads, the men, the coming uppers from Egypt. They were brought up, but they would not continue on the trek to Canaan. Think of Israel rejecting Jesus. They were brought up, but they just failed to go in. That's why a verb is used there. Verse 11 continues, from 20 years old and above. 20 is the number of expectancy. Those who expect have not yet attained. In this case, they never would. Theirs was to be an expectancy which will end in futility. It is a curse upon the people which was then executed day by day and step by step through the wilderness. For 38 years, they suffered under the curse, leaving none of that generation left to enter the inheritance. Verse 11 continues, shall see the land. Here, Moses uses the term ha-adamah. Or the land, when speaking of the land, the Lord promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is important. This is a part that you need to try to grasp. However, in Genesis 12, 13, and 15, when the promises were spoken to Abraham, the Lord used the term ha'aretz, the land. It is also used by Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and so on. This is not without purpose. Ha'aretz, or the land, speaks of the area. Ha'adamah, or the land, speaks of the soil, the ground. However, the word comes from the same source as that of Adam. This is an obvious picture of the coming Christ. This is why Moses is saying this. Paul calls Jesus the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Moses' use of the word ha'adamah here instead of ha'aretz is a picture of Christ, the last Adam he was the hope of Abraham Isaac and Jacob the Messiah to come was their anticipation the Lord through the inspiration of these words spoken by Moses is prophetically looking forward to the generation who would reject Jesus and he is saying that none of these shall see the Messiah this doesn't mean that they wouldn't see Jesus they saw him rejected him and crucified him it is saying that they wouldn't see what he offered meaning himself They rejected Jesus, and they did not see the last Adam. It is then reminiscent of what the Lord promised to Israel if they rejected his coming Messiah in Malachi chapter 4. At the end of that chapter, right at the end of the Old Testament, as it closes out, he told the people, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, Before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the earth with a curse and the people turned away from the Lord and he sentenced them to die in the wilderness over the next 38 years the people rejected Christ and the Lord struck their land with a curse exiling them for the next 2,000 years their expectancy would end in futility. You see how important one single word is? Because all of the time before this, it's always referred to Canaan as Ha'aretz, the land. And one time, Moses says Ha'adama, he's making a picture of Jesus, the second Adam. Verse 11 continues Of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me. This is the only time in the book of Numbers that Abraham or Isaac is mentioned. It is also the only time that Jacob is mentioned as the man, Jacob. Seven other times Jacob is mentioned, but in those instances, it is speaking of Jacob, the people who are Israel. There's an important reason for naming Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob here. The question that must be asked is, when did the Lord swear the land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Was it before the giving of the law or after? It was not after, but before. Therefore, the promise is not of law, but of grace. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob wholly followed the Lord because they believed the Lord. They demonstrated faith. The law is not of faith, but of works. However, those under law can still demonstrate faith. It is by faith and by faith alone that the promise is obtained. This is why Paul said this in Galatians chapter 3. And this I say that the law... Which was four hundred and thirty years later cannot annul the covenant which was confirmed before by God in Christ that should make the promise of no effect for if the inheritance is of the law it is no longer of promise but God gave it to Abraham by promise Abraham was given the promise he believed Isaac received the promise he believed Jacob received the promise he believed the people of Israel received the promise and they failed to have faith in the promise this is why Abraham Isaac and Jacob are mentioned here and only here in the book of numbers Moses is reminding the people of their responsibility as they stand at the very borders of Canaan does everybody see Moses pictures of the law he's saying you're not going to make it through me it's not going to happen by law and where does Moses die outside of the land of promise and yet the law Speaks of the coming Messiah. It says when he comes you've got to pay attention to him The law itself testifies to the coming of Christ Nobody of that faithless generation was to enter the promise nobody verse 12 except Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite and Joshua the son of nun the Lord uses the same word as in verse 9 where it said they did not go into the land they failed to do so here he uses the same word with an attached preposition translated as "except," Where Israel failed, these two guys are the exception. Here Caleb, or dog, is named first. He is identified by his father's name, Yafune, or he will be beheld. He's also identified here as a Kenizzite, a descendant of Canaan, or a son of Canaz, which is an Edomite name. Either way, it's a Gentile later in Joshua his brother up is identified as a son of Canaz thus it is likely that he was of foreign birth and brought into the people of Israel and the tribe of Judah the emphasis on him being a Kenazite is to show his Gentile heritage next Joshua or the Lord is salvation is named he is identified as the son of nun meaning to propagate or increase these two then as was seen in numbers 14 picture both Gentiles And faithful Jews who would receive the inheritance in Christ even while collective Israel was in their time of punishment this is not to say that Caleb himself was a Gentile but the identification of him as a Kenizzite is given to show this in typology where Jews regarded Gentiles as dogs seen in Caleb the dog the Lord accepted them because of Christ his father's name further shows this. He will be beheld. The Gentiles beheld the Christ. They called on him, and they have been the lead of the church for 2,000 years. For those faithful Jews who have come to Christ, they are represented by Joshua. The Lord is salvation. Naming his father Nun shows that the Lord would propagate or increase his offspring through these faithful Jews. And what does Paul say about the Jews? In the book of Romans, he says that there's always been a remnant and there always will be a remnant. That's Joshua at this point in time. He has been picturing the remnant of Jews who have come into the fold of Christianity faithfully for 2,000 years. Very few of them, but they have been there. As always, the typology is given to show Christ and his redemptive plans for his people. This is because his people are represented by them. As he says, verse 12 continues, for they have wholly followed the Lord. Moses now takes the words he just cited from the Lord in the previous verse and he turns them. Quoting the Lord, he said, Kilo milu aharai, for no fully followed after me. But of Caleb and Joshua, he says, Ki milu ahare Yehovah, for they fully followed after Yehovah. The question is, how did they fully follow after the Lord? The answer is simple they believed in him and they believed him. They demonstrated faith in the promise of the Lord, just as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did. They were men of faith, and it is by their faith that they would receive the promise. Those of the law are shown to be excluded from the promise because the law is not of faith, but of works. Verse 13, so the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel. Moses repeats the same thought as in verse 10. There he said, and burned nostril Jehovah that day. Now he says, and burned nostril Yehovah in Israel. The spies discouraged the heart of the people, which caused the people to not wholly follow him. The one action led to the other, and the Lord's anger was aroused, verse 13 going on, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years. The number 40 in scripture points to a period of probation, trial, and chastisement. Israel failed to believe, and they were judged for that receiving the Lord's chastisement for their unbelief. The pattern follows through with Israel's rejection of the Lord Jesus. Though Israel could be considered to have been punished, they were not destroyed. God had promised to never forsake his covenant with them, and he has kept that promise. That is why there is a group of people in the world today called Israel. And that is why that group of people is in the land of Israel, is because not their faithfulness, Not because of their godliness or their righteousness, but because the Lord made a covenant with them and he will never break that covenant. Never, never in a million years or a billion years or for all of eternity, that covenant stands with them as a people. Though chastised, they were not destroyed. Instead, they died off. Verse 13 continues, until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. The question must be asked, what evil did they do which brought about their state? The fact is that Israel did a lot of evil, if you remember all the things that they did since leaving Sinai. But the specific evil that the Lord and now Moses imputes to them is the evil of unbelief. Whereas Caleb and Joshua simply demonstrated faith, Israel was faithless. It's that simple. One is deemed right through belief, or he's deemed out of the Lord's favor through unbelief. That's it. That's the only option for being right with God is faith. It is by grace you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves it is the gift of God and not of works lest any man should boast and it is not enough to simply believe in God this is something that most people in this world do I can tell you I've been all over this world my dad's been around the world a lot more and everywhere you go there's somebody that's believing in God right one must also believe God when he speaks his word is to be accepted Israel failed with the exception of Caleb and Joshua Verse 14, and look, you have risen in your father's place. And behold, you have risen up under your fathers. Moses' words in verse 14 are direct, specific, and powerful. The meaning of this clause is that they have now risen up in the same way as their fathers did who came before them. The God's Word translation paraphrases this as, you're just like your parents. Or as John Gill says, like fathers, like sons verse 14 continues a brood of sinful men now think of the symbolism because we're looking at Israel the church makes this mistake all the time Israel's back in the land therefore they must be right before God they are not right before God they're not even close to it what's his name Amir posted a photo of the Levites singing on the uh, Temple Mount whole bunch of them singing everybody's applauding it saying how great it is and I said just the opposite how sad they're not singing to Jesus How sad they're not singing to Jesus. They are not right with the Lord. I'm not trying to get down on the Jewish people. I'm trying to show you the patterns which are being seen right here from (laughs) Moses' hand, which are being lived out in our lives right now. Verse 14 continues. A brood of sinful men. Tarbut anashim chataim. An increase of men. Sinners. God's word translation again gives a resounding paraphrase. You're a bunch of sinners. Mm -hmm. The idea here is that just as their fathers were sinners so they have risen up in the place of their fathers and are simply adding more sinners to that heap of sinners who came before them it is evident that Moses is severely upset with these people he's even beside himself and so he goes on verse 14 continues to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel that's what they're doing right now they're persecuting the Messianic Jews in Israel how do I know? I see it all the time. I've got friends that are Messianic Jews. They go down and they have their concerts, and the Jews outside are persecuting them, threatening their lives, gonna kill them, everything. That's what's happening right here in these. If you don't think this is what's going on, you're not seeing the typology. This is exactly what's happening. This put odd alharon af Yehovah el Yisrael to scrape up still more upon the burning nostril of Jehovah towards Israel. The words must have been like arrows coming off of Moses' lips. The law is speaking to Israel right now. Right now, today in Israel, the law is speaking to them. The Messiah has come. It's not saying, wait for your Messiah. The Messiah has come. The word he uses and which is translated as increased is safa. It comes from a root meaning to scrape or shave. So I'm going to give you an example. Watch my hand. Thus, there is an increase of what is scraped, right? This is increasing and or there's a decrease of what is scraped. I'm scraping, right? I'm either increasing on this side or I'm decreasing over here. That's what's going on. There's an increase or there is a removal. In this case, it is combined with the word odd or again, and so it's on this side of it. It's an increase. Moses has already twice mentioned the burning nostril of Yehovah. Now his words show that the anger has not gone away It is still alive from the actions of the faithless men almost 40 years earlier, and it is still alive by the faithless people of Israel 2,000 years earlier. And now the action of Gad and Reuben is adding fuel to that fire, which has been and will be directed towards Israel. This is so certain that Moses continues with verse 15, for if you turn away from following him, he will once again leave them in the wilderness, and you will destroy all these people the words take them back to the time when the spies returned from Canaan the people awaited word about the land and the spies gave a bad report in this they caused the people to turn away from following the Lord Moses is saying exactly the same thing will happen the people will get disheartened by the display of cowardice and Gad and Reuben's part and they will turn from following the Lord In this he will again consign them to their fate in the wilderness and the people will again wander until they are destroyed Moses speaks out the general substance of Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9 that which has been will be that which is done will be done and there is nothing new under the Sun Moses hopes to avoid that through his rebuke of what has come before him the Lord desires to show his favor to you he will open the door and lead you to glory this is what he is set to do if you will but believe the gospel story in fact the door is open if you will just but believe And through that door, capital D, you can enter into glory. All he asks is that his son you will receive. Yes, he asks that you accept the truth of the gospel story. And when you do, the door will never again be shut. Your access through him is a guarantee of glory. This is his promise without an if, and, or but. It is yours forever because you have trusted the gospel story. Our second thought today, the proposal And the promise verses 16 through 19 verse 16 isn't this exciting isn't this just exciting verse 16 then they came near to him and said it says and they came near to him it seems that they may have shrunk back from Moses at his rebuke imagine they're just like shrinking back or they retired from him to go talk the matter over or something like that whatever the intent is they had either already determined to take the course of action and had not been given the chance to speak or they decided on the course of action they will now present, and they will now bring it forward as a proposal from Moses to hear. Verse 16 continues, We will build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones. The Hebrew term translated as sheepfolds is Gidrotzon. It means walls, livestock, and thus it's an enclosure of stones which livestock would be led into when they were not grazing. It is interesting that they mention building the sheepfolds even before mentioning cities for their families. The chapter began with the thought of the tribes possessing much livestock and that the land was a region for livestock. It seems that these people are almost possessed by their possessions. In his response to them in verse 24, Moses will place the little ones before the livestock after that in verse 34 it will confirm that they built the cities along with the sheepfolds following the order of Moses words see what happened there they're putting their livestock first Moses corrects them and then they finally concede when we get to verse 34 they'll make the cities first and then the sheepfolds here the term tough or little ones normally speaks of children but in this case it extends out to any who are weak or defenseless and finally the word translated as build signifies the process of building it can be from scratch or to fortify in this case it is probably the latter they had gone into a land already occupied and they had subdued it they would simply need to repair that which was broken down it is a process that would not take a great deal of time if so once the task was complete or as it was ongoing verse 17 but we ourselves will be armed in contrast to the families who are secured in cities with their livestock the males promise to instead stand withdrawn from them, implying armed for battle. And to show their determination in the matter, they then say, verse 17, going on, ready to go before the children of Israel. Here's a new word, hush, which is certainly an poetic expression. It means to make haste. Think of the word hush, and you go fast. We say whoosh, they say hush. Figuratively, it means to be eager with excitement. Hush. To prove they had no intent on cowardice, they show that they are, in fact, eager to go forward with Israel, and so they will hasten to be set so that there will be no delay for Israel because of them. They further state that they are ready to go lifne, or before them. The word can mean before, it can mean in the presence of, and so on, but it surely indicates before as in front of. They have been accused of cowardice, and their response is to indicate that they are exactly The opposite they will set the pace of the battle for all others to emulate and this will last verse 17 going on until we have brought them to their place this means they will be with them during the entire campaign they will not break ranks with their brothers until the land is subdued but they must first put up fortifications in the land verse 17 continues and our little ones will dwell in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land with the cities being fortified they could be defended it is certain that a large portion of the fighting men stayed for that purpose and neither Moses nor anyone else found that unreasonable the census of the tribes showed that Reuben had forty three thousand seven hundred and thirty fighting aged men Gad had forty thousand five hundred and Manasseh had fifty two thousand seven hundred half of Manasseh would be about twenty six thousand three hundred and fifty men then in total They had then about 110,580 men of battle age. And yet we read this in Joshua chapter 4. And the men of Reuben, the men of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over armed before the children of Israel, as Moses had spoken to them, about 40,000 prepared for war crossed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. Therefore, almost two-thirds of the fighting aged men stayed behind. Continued to build defend the people and so on these probably rotated in and out of the battles during the campaign to conquer Canaan the same would be true for the families of the other tribes west of the Jordan and it is almost to be understood without being mentioned to or by Moses now verse 18 we will not return to our homes until every one of the children of Israel has received its inheritance again like the previous verse these words mean the tribe as a whole it cannot mean that the individuals would not return home for a vacation, a family death, or anything like that. The campaign to subdue Canaan is to last seven years. Gad and Reuben, as tribes of fighting men, will remain until all the tribes have what they are now about to possess. This is their word of assurance to Moses now because of their hope of what the future will provide verse 19 finishes with these words for we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond because our inheritance has fallen to us on this eastern side of the Jordan the words here are given a precision that actually confuses some scholars the men now speaking state that they will not take an inheritance meever, or on the side of the Jordan It does not mean specifically on the other side. The term simply means on the side, and it can mean on this side or on the other side. In this case, the verse itself twice explains the meaning when they say on the other side of the Jordan and beyond. This indicates that the land on the side of Canaan may be extended beyond the original boundaries, perhaps towards Lebanon. They then say, using the same expression, that their inheritance will fall me'ever ha-yarden or on side the Jordan eastward. The land of Canaan is the reference point in both. It makes no difference which side is being referred to, as long as the point of reference is understood. However, in an astonishingly inept comment, the normally sound pulpit commentary says of this, All we can say is that the awkward use of the phrases in the two opposite meanings with words of clear definition added points more or less strongly towards a probability that the passage as it stands was written or revised at a later date. You know that just burns me up when I read that type of thing. The entire point of revision is to do what? It's to fix, that's right, that which is broken, not to further muddy the waters. The commentator here must have slipped in his bathtub and then passed out under the water too long, depriving him of oxygen to make such a statement. Comparing the term Me'Ever elsewhere makes the meaning here plain and obvious. They state that the inheritance of Israel is in Canaan, but their inheritance shall be east of the Jordan. Whether their words are presumptuous or whether they are in the form of a petition for approval, they and thus we will now wait for Moses' response, coming soon to a sermon near you. The important point to understand in our verses today is that of what was seen earlier. It is the exemplary note of the Bible concerning a relationship with God, which is that we are to come before him without adding anything to our request for restoration, apart from what he has done in Jesus Christ. We cannot come to him saying, I received Jesus and continued to obey the law to make sure that you would accept me such a presentation does not give God the glory rather it robs it from him by saying that what he did is insufficient for our restoration we also cannot come to him and say I waited for you to regenerate me before receiving Christ that puts an onus on God which is not found in Scripture the Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance However, if God regenerating man first is true, then it means that he must make a second move beyond the giving of his son. That's a concept which is not taught in scripture. Rather, he has given his son and he expects us to receive him. Israel failed at that. We must not fail unless we too are set to perish. God has opened the doors of restoration and he has paved the way to paradise. Be wise and discerning and receive what he has done. Come to Christ and be reconciled to God through Christ's precious shed blood. You all know what I'm about to do is to tell you that you need Jesus. I'm going to repeat what I just said is that God does not expect anything else of you than that. Then if you add something to it, you're saying, okay, God, you sent your son into the world. He lived this perfect life. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He gave his life up in exchange for my sins. He came out of the grave to prove it but that wasn't enough and so I'm going to keep observing the law of Moses so that you will accept me that absolutely deprives God of his glory the glory which he gave to his son and which was fulfilled in his work culminating at the cross of Calvary and the resurrection we need to just simply understand that we are sinners that we come to God with nothing in our hands I wouldn't even have them like this because something might fall in. And then you're offering him something. Hold your hands up like this and say, I got nothing. Shake them. So if there's anything on there, it falls off. I accept what Jesus has done and nothing else. I receive Christ as my Savior. I would pray that that would be your call today if you have never done that. Or if you've let that slip in your life and you've started to add works into your walk before God, put away those works. Put him away because all you're doing is offending God by saying, I need to go get circumcised because I didn't do that, and I know that's a part of the law. Whatever you're adding to what Christ has done is not good. You receive him and then do things for Christ. Then do works for Christ and live for Christ and tell about Christ. But come to him empty-handed and do it today. Today is the day of God's favor, and now is the time of salvation. I might have gotten that backwards, but you get the point. Come to Christ because you don't know when your last breath is going to happen. I would, that would be my one petition today. I wish I was eloquent like Billy Sunday who could have 98,000 people come forward to receive Christ. That's not my job. My job is to give you details of doctrine for your building up after coming to Christ. But there are evangelists out there that bring many, many souls to Christ, and they need to be applauded, and they need to be supported as well. And you have some tracks back there you can hand them out and you can be your own little evangelist even if you can't speak properly the words of the message hand out a track when you go out to dinner let people know about Jesus while there's time our closing verse comes from Galatians chapter 2 it's verses 15 and 16 we heard Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law But by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. That was Paul speaking, actually rebuking Peter. Peter had gone and fallen back on works of the law and Paul right in front of everybody called it out publicly. So what you're doing is not right. That's why he says we are Jews by nature. You and me. And yet we know that didn't get us saved. Paul had all the right in the world to claim it. I'm the Pharisee of Pharisees. I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm of the stock of Benjamin and of the stock of Israel. And it meant nothing. Peter was there with the Messiah, walked with him and saw him. saw so him hang on the cross, but without just simply receiving him with his hands empty, he would not be a part of that glory that is coming to the people of the world. And he fell back on the law. Disgracing what he had seen with his own eyes. I typed a commentary on 1 Peter 2 verse 14 today and it'll make you weep if you read it. The marvel of what Christ did for us. Next week is Numbers 32, 20 through 42. This is the land they will for themselves be a Gainan. It's entitled to Possession East of Canaan. That'll be our 36th number sermon. Sometimes it's hard to get a good rhyming word. So, The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you it may seem at times as if you're lost in the desert wandering aimlessly but the Lord is there he's carefully leading you to the land of promise and so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you okay I've got a poem here for you wait before I give you a poem I got a question for you a moment ago I said that God does not regenerate us in order to believe but that we believe and then are regenerated what false doctrine teaches regeneration before belief? Predestination. But w- what is the person who is that is ascribed to? I'm looking Calvin, for Calvin. Calvin, John Calvin. He gets a Maserati. Now I'm going to give you a bonus, but you've got to answer because you answered it. <laughs> Name a group who teaches the other false doctrine that I mentioned, that of receiving Jesus Christ and yet needing to continue to follow the law of Moses. Catholicism. Well, that's that's almost right. It, they don't really teach the law of Moses, but they do teach works, not specifically the law of Moses. Mm. <laughs> Hebrews Roots Movement. <coughs> can, you, can you guess? No. He, Hebrew Roots Movement and also the Seventh-day Adventists do that and a lot of other... Yeah, well, you got to observe the Sabbath. and Yeah. So, anyway, stay away from Calvinism. They say that you are born again, and then you receive Jesus, and then you're saved. Okay, that's regeneration, and then uh, calling on Christ, and then being saved. That is a false doctrine. Okay, there's no such thing as that. And Hebrew Roots Movement is poison. That is way bad. Okay, anyway, here's our poem. Do not take us over the Jordan. Now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of livestock, And when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that indeed the region was a place for livestock of the herd and of the flock, the children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spoke to Moses with words to be conveying to Eliezer the priest and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, "Atarot debon Jazer, Nimra Heshbon, Eliale, Shebam, Nevo, and Baon, nine cities in which to walk the country which the Lord defeated before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock and your servants have livestock therefore they said if we have found favor in your sight let this land be given to your servants as a possession do not take us over the Jordan we think this is right and Moses said to the children of Gad and to the children of Reuben let me get this clear shall your brethren go to war while you sit here now why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given them, please do tell. Thus your fathers did when I sent them away from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. Listen now, I pray, for when they went up to the valley of Eshcol and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the children of Israel. So they did not go into the land which the Lord had given them. That didn't go so well. So the Lord's anger was aroused on that day, and he swore an oath. Here's what he did say. Surely none of the men who came up from Egypt, from 20 years old and above, yes, from 20, shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me. Except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, according to his word, for they have wholly followed the Lord. So the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone, wandering on a trail of tears. And look, you have risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel once again. For if you turn away from following him, He will once again leave them in the wilderness and you will destroy all these people. We're talking here one giant mess. Then they came near to him and said, we will build sheepfolds here for our livestock, as to you we now tell, and cities for our little ones. But we ourselves will be armed, ready to go before the children of Israel until we have brought them to their place and our little ones will dwell. Please now understand in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land, We will not return to our homes, no, not even by chance, until every one of the children of Israel has received his inheritance. For we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond, because our inheritance has fallen to us on this eastern side of the Jordan, of which we are fond. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness, and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct our lives would be a mess, and so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand and may we take it into our lives daily. It apply. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you. To us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. 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 Heavenly Father, What a marvelous book this is. It just keeps getting more and more incredible every time we open it up and see what's going on in the world and how it's exactly reflected in what you showed us 3,500 years ago at the time of Moses and what was realized 2,000 years ago at the time of Christ and which is now being realized again in our own lifetime. It's utterly astonishing to think that we are at the end of the age and that pretty soon Christ is going to come and blow the trumpet and call us home to glory. May that day be soon, Lord. But until then, may many people of your people, Israel, come to a saving knowledge of the Messiah that they missed the first time. And may the word go forth to the rest of the world as well so that there will be happiness and joy in hearts as they are translated to glory in your presence. We pray this, that you will be glorified, that we will be filled with joy for eternity, and that all will be as it should in the heavenlies in that wonderful time may it be so Lord we thank you and we praise you for this hope we possess and we do so in Jesus name Amen Amen.